Today's scripture reading is from Esther chapter 2, verse 19 through chapter 3, verse 15. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the Book of the Annals in the presence of the king. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told him he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is a lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people who dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your people kingdom, of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took this, his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month of the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to kings, satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality, so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued to the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. My name is Brian. One of the pastors here at the church, we want to welcome you to Sunday service today. Uh, today, we continue in our sermon series in Esther. And why do we study Esther in the first place? Just to get right going uh, out of the gate here. Well, the story of Esther and Mordecai is about God's people trying to navigate a predominantly secular culture and world. 
And the evidence of the fact is uh, literarily made known to us when there's no mention of God anywhere in the story. And so it is also largely with us in our regular discourse and conversations of our life in New York City with coworkers and bosses and neighbors that God isn't mentioned either. Uh, we're living in Persia, as it were, still. And so the question of how a Christian can be in the world but not of the world is one of the central questions the book of Esther seeks to answer. And it's our keen interest for the next several weeks uh, for the remaining sermon series. Today, specifically, we're taking a look at the Christian hope in an evil world. Uh, and if I could focus our minds on one question to answer today, and it's, it's this. How do you live in an evil world as a Christian? How do you live in an evil world as a Christian? Or what will our response be to an evil world? And our text, I think, answers this question, but we have three uh, points, and be the three points of the sermon today. It's uh, the problem of internal evil, the problem of external evil, and the solution for both. There's an internal problem, there's an external problem, and then the solution for both. Let's, let's get into this, the internal evil. If you'll recall with me, Mordecai is a Jew. He's living in the citadel of Susa. Uh, and he's raised his cousin Esther from when she was young, um, who since last week has become Queen Esther to King Xerxes of Persia. Uh, now the curtain draws in our passage to Mordecai today, who's supposed to be the shining exemplar of how a person of faith ought to live in an evil world. But upon closer examination, what we find in the character and in the actions of Mordecai um, is that it reveals that he's actually a bit of a morally and spiritually ambivalent and compromised figure. And it's this moral and spiritual ambivalence or compromise that profoundly also reveals our own heart of moral and spiritual ambivalence or compromise. Let's look at the story together. If you'll turn with me to the passage in the middle of your bulletin, chapter 2, verse 19 to 23, we're told that Mordecai is in the king's palace, he overhears a plot, to, uh, a plot to assassinate the king. He tells Queen Esther, who then tells King Xerxes, and upon investigation, it's found to be true. And so the two men responsible for the plot are hanged on the gallows, or excuse me, impaled on poles. Now we're also told that his loyalty is recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And so his loyalty, his, his good work for the king, before the king, is uh, recorded in the book of Chronicles, and the king is there, um, seeing it recorded. And then in the very next verse, we're told, after these events, where Mordecai saved the life of King Xerxes, uh, we're told after these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, uh, son of Hamedatha, the Agagite and elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the nobles. Now, at the king's command, uh, all were to bow and to pay tribute and homage to Haman, who was promoted to basically the vice regent um, of King Xerxes. But what does Mordecai do? How does he respond? Well, he doesn't bow. He doesn't bow. And the reason for that is twofold. One is he probably felt bitter and jealous because his self-ambition for promotion wasn't realized. 
But also, the, the second reason is to add insult to injury, Haman actually is an ancient tribal enemy of Mordecai. And you'll have to go back into the story in 1 Samuel 15, where King Saul, the first king of Israel, is fighting the Amalekites, and the king of the Amalekites is King Agag. Now, 500 years later, fast forward to our present passage context, and what you have is Haman, who's an Agagite. He's a descendant of King Agag. And you have Mordecai, and we're told in chapter 2, verse 1, that Mordecai is from the tribe of Kish of Benjamin. So he's a Benjaminite. Now, you'll have to remember, again, King Saul, what tribe was he from? He was from Benjamin. He was a Benjaminite. And so you see that this old family feud from 500 years ago still is enacting itself in the life of Haman and Mordecai. And Haman hasn't forgotten, and Mordecai hasn't forgotten either. And so, of course, uh, we see this moral and spiritual ambivalence in this way. Uh, you see that his morality is not cut and clear, uh, good or evil. Because, you see, in one moment, Mordecai saves a life, which obviously is a good thing. God commends us um, and others to save and promote life. Uh, but you have to realize that Mordecai protected and promoted an evil king and his regime. And so in his one action, you see that on one hand, it's good that he promoted life, but he promoted the life of an evil king and his rule or his regime. But in the next moment, um, starting from verse 1 in chapter 3, we see that Mordecai disobeys the king of the land, which by all... By, by all purposes, according to the scripture, is something that God doesn't will for us. God wants us to obey the leader of the land, whoever it might be, but he disobeys Mordecai. But now, all of a sudden, it's in the name of some noble or biblical cause because he's going after, uh, or he's going after avenging the name and honor of his own family in this old ancient feud with the house of Agag. What we see in his character and actions, then, is that he's neither here or there. He's neither fully moral or fully immoral. He's neither fully faithful or fully pagan. He's this muddled composition of good and evil, and it's hard to tease out the two. But you know, the same is true with us. It's entirely possible for us to be this muddled composition of good and evil. Uh, imagine um, at the end of the week, you have all these scraps of entrees and dishes that you've accumulated over the week, and you need to do something with it. You need to do, you know, make magic happen uh, with the leftovers that you have. Maybe it's a scrap of protein, or maybe a little, you know, stock of something veg vegetable-like um, uh, down below in the fridge. And you have to just kind of gather all these ingredients and mix them all together, kind of put it into a casserole or something, pour some cream on it you know, put it in the oven and make it into magic. But imagine if one of those ingredients was moldy and you had put it in and stirred it all up in that casserole. Well, you have to say that that entire casserole is just ruined. It's uh, not edible. Well, so is the case with the muddled composition that we are. We can do good, we can be generous, we can be kind, we can promote philanthropy throughout the city, right? We can serve, we can be kind to others, but if there's even an inkling of evil in our hearts, what that means is that it's going to contaminate the entire soup 
um, of our hearts. This past week, Michael Cohen gave his testimony before the House Intel Committee. And um, I'm not trying to make any political statements here, uh, but he did say something that I thought was very insightful about the human heart. And he said this. He's talking about Trump, of course, and he said this. He is capable of behaving kindly, but he is not kind. He is capable of committing acts of generosity, but he's not generous. He's capable of being loyal, but he's fundamentally disloyal. Now, whether you agree that's true or not of our President Trump, you have to agree that that's true of you. Uh, before we're so harsh about who the person in question is, uh, we can, can kind of turn the scalpel on ourselves and ask, is this true of me? And the fact is, the truth is that it is. It is true of us. We are this model composition of good and evil because it's, it's totally possible to be giving to philanthropy, let's say, which is a good thing, but inside you could be miserly and attention-seeking. Uh, you could be a loving parent, for instance, but actually unloving and judgmental and harsh with other parents who don't measure up to the same standard of, good, uh, of what good parenting is supposed to be like. Uh, which made me question your ability uh, for true love in the first place. Is that really love? Uh, well, yes and no. It's, it's, it's kind of this ambivalence. It's kind of this compromise. John Steinbeck echoes the same idea. Uh, he authored uh, famously of Mice and Men and the Grapes of Wrath. Many of us have read that at some point um, earlier in life, perhaps. Um, but in his novel, East of Eden, he says this, and you can find the quote in your bulletin. He says, I believe that there is one story in the world, and only one, that has frightened and inspired us. Humans are caught in their lives, in their thoughts, in their hungers and ambitions, in their avarice and cruelty, and in their kindness and generosity too, in a net of good and evil. I think this is the only story we have, and that it occurs on all levels of feeling and intelligence. Virtue and vice were warp and woof of our first consciousness, and they will be, and they will be the fabric of our last. There's no other story. A man after a man after he has brushed off the dust and chips of his life will have left only the hard, clean questions: Was it good, or was it evil? Have I done well or ill? I think we could relate to this. We are this net of both good and evil all the time. You know, East of Eden was a novel that was published in 1952. Just a few years later, it was turned into a movie, and there was a movie poster made about it. Uh, James Dean featured in the movie, uh, by the way. Um, and there was a tagline for the movie uh, on the movie poster, and it read, sometimes you can't tell who is good and who is bad. But I think more accurate would be the tag, if I may revise that, uh, I think more accurate would be sometimes you can't tell if I am good or bad. We think that we could be good, but that good is tainted and corrupted by other evils in our hearts. That is to say that all of us are permeable to both good and evil, and ultimately what that means is we're evil, because what we are is a boiling cauldron of good and evil, and it's one of those recipes where one of the ingredients will dominate the entire soup. Um, evil 
has tainted the soup. Evil has tainted our good so that there's actually no more any pure good. See, that's the state of our internal evil. There is some semblance of goodness because we are created in the image of God, but it's tainted and corrupted by sin and evil, which makes it evil. It's unedible. It's been contaminated. That's the state of our internal evil. And so in that state, how are we ever going to navigate an evil world? And that's what we're going to talk about next. How are we going to... What does this evil world then now consist of? Because we don't just fight a battle just on one front, but on two. We have to battle our internal evil, but at the same time, there's this external evil that works against us. And so what does this external evil look like? What's its inner working? Well, now we zoom in on Haman, who will represent the evil of the world. And uh, if you'll turn with me, chapter 1 to 6, again, Haman, he's promoted to power instead of Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow. And get this, this is what Mordecai does. It's a little bit rash, but this is what he does. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai, Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And so you know what this really rash guy does? He says, I'm not satisfied with just taking out the guy who refused to bow to me. Let's just plot a genocide. Let's just wipe out and annihilate an entire people because of hatred, because of bigotry, because of racism, because of pride. You know, this is external evil at its best. External evil is rash. It's absolutely unpredictable. I mean, think about what Haman does next. He is going to uh, turn with me to verse 7. It says, In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. Well, select a day and a month for what? for this genocide to occur, for this massacre, for this, uh, for this massacre to occur. And it fell on the 12th month, the, the month of Adar. Evil is rash, it's unpredictable. I mean, they cast lots, poor, which is the equivalent of picking sticks or drawing sticks or literally rolling the die. That, that's what poor means, it means dice. Um, and so they're really just rolling a hand for the life of an entire race. It's absolutely unpredictable, and it's imminent too. It's overhanging. You ever get the sense that evil is just kind of hanging over your head, kind of like an anvil, just waiting to drop at any moment? Not to mention again, but Haman, he's an Agagite. He's an ancient tribal enemy, and so he hasn't forgotten. He hasn't forgotten about the past, meaning that he keeps a record of wrong. And that's exactly how this evil world works against us as well. It'll keep a record of our wrong. It'll keep a record of our debts. It'll keep a record of our late payments. Um, it won't let you forget it either, and it'll make you pay for it with interest. You know, the scary thing about Mordecai's evil world is that not much has changed today. If you look in your bulletins, there's a quote by Jill Hicks who gave a TED Talk entitled Identity in the Face of Terror. 
and this is what she said. I could never have imagined that a 19-year-old suicide bomber would teach me a valuable lesson, but he did. He taught me to never presume anything about anyone you don't know. On a Thursday morning in July 2005, the boy and I unknowingly boarded the same train carriage at the same time, standing apparently just feet apart. I didn't see him. Actually, I didn't see anyone. You know not to look at anyone in the tube, but I guess he saw me. He saw all of us as his hand hovered over the detonation switch. I often wondered what was he thinking, especially in those final seconds. I know it wasn't personal. He didn't set out to kill or maim me, Jill Hicks. I mean, he didn't know me. Instead, he gave me an unwarranted and unwanted label. I had become the enemy. To him, I was the other, the them, as opposed to us. And the label enemy allowed him to dehumanize us, uh, to push that button. It could happen to anyone, anywhere, anytime. The threat of evil can happen, and it does. Uh, living in New York, uh, we don't have to look far back in recent history to know the evil havoc of terrorism, um, to know the fear of bullies who can really hurt and destroy lives. As one of your pastors, I worry all the time, maybe, maybe too much, but I am concerned for all of you while you're out there in the big bad city. I wonder about how you guys are doing. But I also specifically in the context of our pastors today, I wonder, I, I, I don't want anything to happen to you guys. I don't want you guys to get hurt. So obey the, the signals and uh, be careful. But I'm also speaking as a father here. Right? Every time Jeannie goes out and takes her 10-minute you know, city bike ride to the east side where she works, um, or any time I take Evelyn out on a stroller, I, I can't help but have on the back burner this idea that I could be taken out in some way or form by, uh, maybe unintentionally, but it could be intentionally as well, right? Evil, um, cruelty, by hate, um, it could happen to us. And I dread to think that. But the evil world is unpredictable. It is imminent, though. We're told in the scriptures that actually it's going to get worse and worse and worse. But, you know, sometimes I don't know what's worse. Uh, our own moral and spiritual ambivalence, which is evil in the sight of God, or the unpredictable and imminent uh, evil of this world. But you definitely put them together and what you have is a fiercely cruel world to contend with. That's what we're left with here. That's our state. Internal evil, external evil, what do we do about it? Because there are no easy answers to this. I wish I could stand up here and say, so here's what we have to do. Okay? Here's how you traverse through this evil world. Uh, but I can't do that. But there is a solution that is offered according to this passage and according to the Bible. So... What is it? Well, the Bible solution is simple. Um, it's overcoming evil with good. Now, before you start checking out, because it seems so cliche or so, I don't know, Christian-y, um, 
give it a thought. Overcoming evil with good, how does it play out in our story and in the grander story of the scriptures? Well, if you look with me again to the passage, verse 8 to 15, to the remainder of the passage, we're told that Haman, after he's cast lots to determine the date and the month of the massacre, he goes to King Xerxes and he says, you know, there's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples of all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's law. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So you know what the what happens? The, the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, and the signet ring symbolized the power and authority of the king. It was basically a giving of the power of attorney to uh, Haman to act legally on behalf of the king. And the king says, keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. And so what happens is from, from there, Haman writes a letter that becomes a decree, and it's by dispatches carried forth by couriers to all the land, telling everybody the date that all of the Jews would be annihilated from the kingdom of Persia. That's cruel and evil, is it not? And we've seen this recapitulated in the history of humanity, haven't we? How do we overcome such a big, powerful, evil entity like this, especially, again, keeping in mind that we have another front to battle as well, our own evil. What's it going to take? Well, it's going to take help. It's going to take provision. It's going to take intervention. It's going to take God's intervention because he needs to rewrite the story, and he does, and this is how he does it. It's so amazing that we see this in the scriptures, but Jesus, the son, takes effectively the exact identical script that Haman said to King Xerxes, and he goes to God the Father. Listen to what Jesus effectively said to God the Father. He says, you know, there's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples of all the provinces of your kingdom, God. Their customs are different, and they don't obey your laws, Father. If it pleases the, the king, let it be decreed, uh, let a decree be issued to destroy them and 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. And so God permits this because his holy righteousness demands justice for those who break it. And so Jesus, with all the same power and authority as the Father, with heaven's signet ring, as heaven's signal ring, becomes a human being and enters into an evil humanity, though being sinless himself. And on the cross, he takes on evil, the evils of humanity, for evil enemies who crucified him unjustly. And when Jesus saw evil enemies, you know how he overcame evil with good? When Jesus saw evil enemies, he didn't fight them with a sword, but he loved them with a prayer. 
a prayer that he prayed as he was bleeding to death on a cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see how Jesus overcomes our evil, our personal internal evil with his goodness by his love. By going to the cross and dying for us, you see that God has dealt with the evil in our hearts. He nails our sins to himself and then he's hung on it. We're no longer, because of that, in the bondage of our sin and our evil. We no longer need to be morally or spiritually ambivalent, but we can be freed to live in true righteousness because Jesus has cleansed us and made us whiter and purer than snow, as we're told by the prophet Isaiah. But then how does this action deal with the evil world and the evil one himself? He's freed us, but what about this evil world that we still need to traverse together as a family of faith? Well, you know, death thought that it would have the final laugh when Jesus was crucified and died on the cross. But when Jesus overcame evil with his goodness by dying a righteous man on a cross for, the, for sinners in their place, something extraordinary happened. And specifically three days later, because you know what? He terrified terror with his resurrection life. Do you know the wily coyote and his pursuit for the roadrunner always? But you know how the story goes every single time, right? Um, he, the wily coyote, gets caught okay, in his own trickster devices that was intended for the roadrunner. It's like this boomerang that he throws to strike the roadrunner, but instead it comes back to him and hits him. But that's exactly what's happened when Jesus rose from the dead. This is exactly what happened to evil and the evil one, who thought that death and evil was the great and undefeatable weapon he had in his arsenal, but it backfires on him because the man he conspired on um, to be crucified on the cross was none other than the life itself, the giver of life, the one who said, I am the life and the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he will not die. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do we believe this? That Jesus conquered evil. He conquered death with death. He put death to death. So that though an evil world may bruise or break us and break our bodies, they can never destroy our soul because it's been won for Christ by Christ. You know, that's why Paul instructed in Romans 12, do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good because he knows what Jesus did. And it was the power that was able to defeat evil once and for all. You know, this is the hope, the Christian hope that we have in an evil world. That in Jesus Christ, God's righteousness. Evil can have our darkest nights, and evil may. But the resurrection and the life will raise you to new and everlasting life in the morning. And so you know what our attitude should be as Christians with living hope in this evil world? Evil, you can take my darkest nights 
but you'll never have my new and everlasting life in the morning. And that is the hope and faith that we have as a church worldwide, especially in the face of so many atrocities in the world that are happening, people that are being persecuted, dying because of their faith. That's the hope that we have. And if that's the hope that we can have, this is the application that we can have in our lives. And I just want to end with a few. It means that we can pray for our enemies, just like Jesus commanded. If we have that hope, and it's only in that hope that we can pray for our enemies, because in that hope we realize that we were once enemies, and that we were freed from sin, free from our own evil, so that now we can live on to Christ's righteousness. We can be slaves to righteousness now. And so we have to believe what was true for us could be true for this evil world. That's the kind of posture that we can have. We can pray for our enemies. Teach it to your children. Teach it to your friends and teach it to yourself. Whenever there are people who are trying to break you or bruise you or hurt you, pray for them with the love and hope of Christ, knowing one day that all things will be fulfilled in him with his return. In John, we're reminded, in the world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I want to end with this. Um, there was a, a, a famous pastor by the name of Richard Wormbrand uh, who was an evangelical minister in Romania. And in 1945, when the communists seized Romania, they also seized the church and sought to take control of the church. And immediately what happens um, in times of persecution like that, the church goes underground, goes underground. And Richard Wormbrand tried to minister to oppress the believers during this time. But in 1948, he was arrested for doing so, along with his wife, Sabina, and for three years, he was imprisoned as a slave laborer, and he was in solitary confinement for all three years. And then later, he was transferred to um, a group cell where he was tortured for another five years. And then he was released. But upon his release, he continued right away uh, and continued and resumed his work with the underground church. A few years after that, he was rearrested and sentenced to 25 years in prison. And it was only through a general amnesty just a handful of years later that he was released. And guess what he did? He went back and resumed his work with uh, uh, working with the underground church. He appeared even before the UN, um, stripping down um, his top and showing the torture marks and wounds uh, that was inflicted on his body. At various times, because of this, labeled by Christian leaders, uh, he was labeled uh, by Christian leaders as the voice of the underground church. And he continued resuming his work with the underground church until his death. And he's known for saying this, hate the evil systems, but love your persecutors. Love their souls and try to win them for Christ. That's extraordinary hope that we could have. Uh, just like Richard Wimbrand in this world of evil. Because we know that we have a love and a goodness that has overcome evil. 
now you may turn to your bulletins. There's that last quote in there for you, but it's not really a quote. It's, it's a prayer. It's a prayer that Scotty Saul wrote, um, and he entitled it, Evil Begun. And as we close, I um, want to make this our prayer. Um, and that's how we'll close. So if you bow with me as you pray this prayer, you can read along or just pray along. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful eternal life includes a world completely devoid of all sin, evil, and brokenness. Though it will require your second coming, nonetheless, I am grateful for that day and long for it more than ever. The day of no more bombings or even kidnappings, no more human trafficking or even bad traffic, no more greed or need in any form. No more harming or hurting, meanness or madness. No more broken people, places, or things. Everything, every place, and everyone will be redeemed and restored, radiant and robust. Hasten the day. Thanks for Jesus for destroying the devil's work by your work on the cross. He crushed head, broken dominion, and sure demise our sweetness to our souls, peace in our storms, and power for our missions. Through your shame, you shamed evil, and by your defeat, you destroyed darkness. Terror is now terrified of you. Though the devil is filled with fury, he is on a leash, knowing his time is short. We won't shrink back and bemoan. We will not cower or take cover. You've won the war, and you'll win the remaining battles as well. As full as the world is with evil and devils, it will be filled thousands of times over with your glory and beauty. As surely as you spoke the world into existence, you'll speak the one word that will fully fell the devil and spell the end to all his deadly doings. Hallelujah. 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 Lord Jesus, we praise, bless, and adore you for so great a salvation and so trustworthy a hope. For your glory, we will live this day in light of that day. So very amen, we pray in your exalted and majestic name.